0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 81, and we're following the story of the Amazulu, the Kwabe, the Mkise, the Ndwandwe, and the Mtetwe, circa 1819. By this time, the Mkise and the Kwabe, along with many other smaller groups and clans, had been pushed south by the aggression of the Ndwandwe and troubles generally around the Swaziland area. Zetlando was already the Mkize chieftain when Shaka took control of the Zulu and their relationship would continue until Shaka was assassinated in 1828. Shaka referred to Zitlandu as his younger brother, his Mnamuwami. Zitlandu consered Shaka, then was directed to fight Um Umcholoza of the Um Mkamalala people, a small clan of folks who'd splintered off and headed south. But the big fish awaited, Zwides and Dwandwe, and Shaka knew that to take on such a powerful foe, he'd need to build his forces. He began to approach the Tembu, the Satole, the Trunu, and others living nearby. We must understand that at this stage, each one of these chieftains was like a separate entity. It's not like Zululand today. The Tembu surname, the Satole, the Trunu, the Tle, are all originally not Zulu. They became part of this one group, mainly owing to Shaka and the fact that they shared a common language, which we now call Zulu, but not a common accent, something like the various English accents that exist so close to each other in Britain. So the Mkize were based south, near the Tugela, and northwest of these people were the Tembu, an ancient folk who had had so much to say further south in the Amatoza quarrels. The Zululand Tembu were based between the highlands of the Tugela River and the Imzinyati River, the Buffalo River, between today's Ladysmith, Wienan, and Tugela Ferry. The Tembu had expanded under the powerful chief Mgozo, Ka Umkubukeli, for a decade, and Shaka was aware that they were not to be trifled with. But Ngoza made a big mistake in 1817 when he sent messengers to Shaka who stuck a reed in the ground in front of the Zulu king. That was a gesture of defiance, as Dan Wiley calls it in his brilliant book, Myth of Iron. Shaka flew into a rage, particularly since he was told that Ngoza was goaded into this act by Wani of the Klunu. You'll hear more about him in a moment. And yet Shaka had the presence of mind to recognize that the messengers were courageous. They were refusing to back down, and Shaka actually congratulated them for sticking to what their chief had told them to do, despite the fact that he could have had them killed for their impudence. Instead, Shaka gave them three oxen, said he had no quarrel with messengers, but only with their chief, and sent them home, telling them to pass on a message that he would attack Chief Mgauza during the next new moon. And just before the next new moon, Shaka duly sent his impi along to teach Ngosa a lesson, but it backfired. The first attack was supposed to be a night raid, which Shaka loved so much, at a place which is now the Imsinga Division near Pomeroy, at a hill known as Emb. Pomeroy is north of Greytown on the R twenty-two highway, about seventy kilometres into the hills. Shaka's impi was chased off, and Ngosa was so sure of that victory that he lined up the women at the rear of the troops who were shouting and ululating as their men defeated the Zulu. This battle actually took place during the day. Many Zulu warriors were killed, although we don't know the exact number. When he heard about the defeat, Shaka sent his crack Langezwa regiment to teach Ngoza a lesson, but he had already headed down the Tugela and was now at Impulwan on the south bank of the river and was assaulting the Kuzi people. Once again, the history here is a bit muddled because the oral storytellers contradict each other, but there's no doubt that Ngoza survived and he killed a large number of Shaka's warriors during the first attack. He'd moved again, and after this, he was just south of the confluence of the Imzinyati and Tugela rivers, just north of Greytown today, and escaped further attack. From now on, Shaka wisely decided to leave Ngoza of the Tembu alone because the far bigger challenge of the time was the encroaching Induanwe. By now, Shaka had managed to rope in the Satoli people under their chief Jobe. The family name Satoli is significant, and they loom large in this story. They threw in their lot with Shaka. Jobe of the Satoli was a squat man, powerful, with a big beard that was to turn an almost neon white in later years. He was granted the land between the Tugela and the Imzinyati pretty much smack bang in the middle of the Tembu territory. Jobi cemented alliances by marrying one of Shaka's sisters, then handed a son to one of Shaka's Izigotlil women. The Tembu were highly skilled at working hides and skins, and Shaka turned over the manufacturing of his important Zulu shields to Jobi's people. They also produced the blue monkey skins and luri feathers from Enkatla Forest for the Zulu. There was another group who became synonymous with the Zulu in early days. These were the T'unu. We've heard about how the Kwabe lived along the M'Latuzi river that flows into Richard's Bay. The origin story of the Kunu is also mysterious, and they link themselves to early Zulu history, full of myth. When the Zulu crossed the M'Latuzi heading south, the Kunu say they stayed behind, watching as the Kwabe headed off northwesterly along the M'Latuzi. The oral storytellers say that old man Kunu and the Zulu were sons of one man. They were all M'Tunguas originals, full bloods, The kunu were also famous for the manufacture of medicines. They were the hawkers of these meds known as Abarwebe. Some say this genealogy was dreamed up over time by the kunu who wanted to appear as Zulu as possible. They also pierced their ears, wore headrings and copied the Zulu in every part of their rituals and social life. Matringwani led the kunu and he lived near the Mvoti River, somewhere between Greytown and Kwadrukuza, otherwise known as Stanga, and south of the Tugela, This area was a whirl of action in 1819. Remember, it was where the Mkizi crazy man called Sambela lived. It was close to the Mkizi, the Kvele, south-east of the Tembu. The Kunu were a significant group, larger than the Zulu at this point, with a powerful and independently-minded chief called Matringwani, who had a long list of imizi, ingonyameni, Ilangeni, Ekanini, Ingomba, Ingauulweni, Mdakeni, Mbanguini, Ebatweni. Anyone with eight or more Amisu at this time was no small potato, and he had more than a dozen clans living under his control, as well as at least five Amabutho. The oldest was Ingagu, who could trace their origin far earlier than any Zulu Amabuto. Matwangwani also had the Abatwa, iziquenquezi Umungu. Amachanga, and he defeated them Kizi a number of times, including both Zitlandu and the crazy man, Sambela. Mattingwani never fully acceded to Shaka's control. These two would be at odds for the foreseeable future. The Kunu leader refused to kowtow to the Zulu chief. He was no one's client, no one's lackey, not even Shaka's. Others were not as sanguine about their chances. There were many smaller groups of people living along the Tugela, such as the Inkolosi, the Zondi, the Bomvu, and the Nganga. The subjugation of the Bomvu, for example, is interesting because they saw a Zulu impi on the way and headed off to a steep hilltop called Upisweni, which is southeast of the Tugela-Imzinyati confluence. That's about 16 kilometers northwest of Kranskop today. The Bomvu had managed to drive their cattle onto this hilltop and the Zulu could not attack. There was one heavily defended access point. It was bordered by precipices on the other three sides, so Shaka sat below, staring at the access routes, working on a plan. He had spotted wild fig trees growing around the sides of the rocky hill and ordered his men to build ladders. That night they set up the ladders against the fig trees and the Zulu climbed onto the hill. The Bumvu women were first to notice at least according to Zulu oral tradition, and warned their men, but it was too late. The men ran off. The Zulus seized all the cattle, and reports say there was no actual fighting. The Kamalala and the Dunge were overcome by Zitlando of the Mkise on Sharka's behest. So were the Kabelo. The Nklovu were also beaten in battle by Zitlandu, and one of the Nklovu men ended up becoming a virtual slave of Sambela. That was Siklanda's unruly brother you heard about last podcast. What is also not well known is that the Zulu regarded all these people as lesser mortals. They were the scrabblers of Zululand. They were Amalala. The Tefulid were those who mispronounced their words. They were dishonorable in the eyes of the Zulu true bloods. Back in the day, the Zulu referred to these people, and some still do, as the inyakeni, Unsavory, untrustworthy, undignified. While Shaka was reinforcing his southern base, to the north major changes were afoot. Mtetwa leader Dingiswayo was still around, fighting the Ndwandwe, and Shaka still regarded him as his big brother, a man to look up to. This changed suddenly in 1819. I mentioned that Dingiswayo's death led to severe instability across northern Zululand, and it's time now to get down amongst the weeds to probe this error more comprehensively. Each month and each moment from now on has a bearing on the two centuries since, as bizarre as this sounds. We live with the ramifications to this day in southern Africa, and you're going to see why. Zwire of the Ndwandwe was not a man to fiddle around with. He'd overrun vast tracts of northern Zululand by 1819 and was intent on seizing the lands of the Zulu, the Kwabe, the Mkise, the Kunu, and others. The big problem for Zwire is that he'd never managed to overrun the Mtetwa, and Dengizwayo in particular. However, this was about to change when Zwide dreamed up a scheme to seize Dingiswayo, who was afraid of no one, and sometimes played fast and loose with his own safety. The stories abound of what happened next, so I'm going to relate some of the versions. One says that Zwide sent Dengizwayo, one of his daughters, as a gift, and she duly bedded him, and collected some of his semen in a snuff box, or an umfete, as it's known. She slipped out with this gift and headed back to Zuide, who stirred the discharge into a mix of medicines which froth like mad. Back at his great place, Tingaswayo is reported to have suddenly been overcome by the need to go to war, and his Isinduna objected, saying there was no reason. Tingiswayo though, dressed up in his warrior outfit, including his long blue crane feather, At that moment, locusts settled on the feather which had fallen from his hands. A terrible omen. The Zenduna were reported to have shouted, Ngozi, the army has been injured. Let it be prepared with medicines again. Dengiswaya refused. He was in a rush and headed off to fight Zwide, arriving before his army. Because he was apparently bewitched, he wandered off from his regiment, the Inyakeni, and was captured. Some say no, he didn't wander off. He was sitting with the girls from his Izigodlo, watching his men prepare for battle from a nearby hill when the Ndwandwe caught him unawares. Others hint that it was Sharker who conspired with Zwide. That is the story told by trader Henry Francis Finn. This we think is unlikely, and his being taken by surprise as he watched his army is probably what happened. But we know he definitely was captured and dragged off to Zwide's main home at Insinguenli. There are a few tales of what happened next, which I'm going to relate, but the upshot was Zwide killed Dengizuayu, finally after more than two decades of trying. One version has Zwide using his his medicine men to end Dengizuayu's life. The other version says Zwide called his izinduna to his side to view a defeated chief, and then that chief died from the meds he'd mixed previously. Another says Zvide wanted to leave Dingaswayo alive, but his notoriously vicious mother in Tombazi demanded he be beaten to death. And perhaps the most shocking version has it that Zwide ordered Dingaswayo to be staked out, spread eagled on the ground, face up, and then drove a herd of cattle over him. What we do know, however, is that Zwide was awoken one night after he had killed Dingaswayo by the dead chief's wives who had arrived at Tsingweni. They apparently climbed on the roofs of the huts and wailed their grief. Zwiri left them alone, and they went home unharmed. Later, Trader Finn retold some of these stories, along with Bryant, an early historian of Zululand. We probably cannot ever know what happened to Tingazwai, apart from the fact that Zwiri had overcome the great chief of the Tetwa. Some say, after this, Zwiri ordered the Tetwa to be driven off to Delagoa Bay, where they were sold as slaves. Again, we don't know there is nothing in Delagoa Bay journals or logs that suggest this happened, although, as you know by now, there is a distinct lack of proper information for the period stored in any journal by officials at Delagoa Bay. The effect, however, of Dingiswayo's death is not disputed. It left a power vacuum and the Mthethwa fell apart. Various tribes tried to seize control or announce their independence. Some decided to Konza Zwide, others Konza Dingiswayo's brother Mondisa. Some coins it Shaka. This is where the role of the Langani clan comes to the fore. If you followed the recent debates about who should succeed King Goodwill Zwilatini of the Zulu, you'll know there's nothing simple about succession in this area of southern Africa. Back in 1819, Shaka was becoming uneasy. The Langani chief, Makedama, immediately headed off to Zwide, having been subjugated previously by Dingezwayo. The Langeni were itching for some of the good old days and regarded Shaka as a young upstart. But the Langeni and the Ndwanwe were odd bedfellows, and literally, it appears. Zwide took a liking to a group of the Langeni girls and was trying to court them, but he was an underwhelming character, and they insulted him, saying, What does this old dried-up thing, this Ugogo, want with us? We want his sons, Sikunyani and Molanjana. This, of course, was an insult, and the Langeni leader, Makedama, was in a pickle. His new overseer, Zwide, demanded blood. Makedama rushed off to consult the Langeni elders for advice. Should they go to war or should they flee because the Langeni maidens had told off Zwide in no uncertain terms? The elders reminded him that they needed to complete the building of the new Imizi, and they still needed to reap their Amabele sorghum crop. This was no time to be fighting a war. Meanwhile, the younger Langeni warriors were angry, preferring a death of honour, fighting Swede. Makedama, it turned out, was more pragmatic and decided that the women and children should head south to Kwanza the Tetwa once more and to ask Diggaswaya's son Mondiza for support. Shaka peered suspiciously at this whole arrangement. Yeah, with the Mtetwa being bolstered by the arrival of the Langeni, so he duly invited Mondiza to an Umjadu dance. Now, we all know what happens if Shaka invites you to an Mjadu dance. You're likely to be dancing from the end of an assegai pretty soon, and that's precisely what happened to the poor fellow. On the way to the dance, all dressed up with somewhere to go, Mondiza was waylaid and speared to death. Shaka later explained the assassination to all and sundry that Mondiza had been singing unacceptable songs about him and deserved to die. Makedama of the Langeni dragged himself back to the Zulu. For Sharka, problem solved. Then, to reinforce his power, Shaka wasted no time in installing a close ally into the new role of Mtetwa chief. Mlandela, the son of Mbiya Ka Chongani, a cousin of Dingiswayo, a man respected as part of Mtetwa hierarchy, was formally inducted as the new chief by Sharka. Mlandela was of Izukulu blood, but not pure-blooded enough to threaten Shaka. And just to make a point, Shaka married off his half-sisters Traba and Nomzimhlanga to Umlandela. The chief, though, was only really half a chief. Umlandela could not perform the Umkhozi ceremonies, nor could he force others to butwa him. It was made clear that Shaka, and only Shaka, could carry out these important rituals. Still, it wasn't all plain sailing for Shaka, as some Umtetwa left anyway, including Dingaswayo's other heir, Somveli. It was about this time that both Shaka and Zwide began jostling another large clan further west, up the Mfulozi rivers, where the Komalo people lived. Zwide killed one of the senior leaders called Donda, then Mashobana, who lived on the Intumbani mountain, close to the highlands of the Mkuzi river. This is where one of the most famous of all characters we'll meet in this history series pops up. You see, Mashobani's son was Mzilikazi wa who was forced to konza Zwide, but balked. Mzillikazi's grandfather was Zwide, but when his father died, he decided he would konza Shaka instead. The next few years would see Mzilikatsi seeking to free his people from the yoke of both Zwide and Shaka, and eventually take off for the Haifelt, and after battling the Trekpurs there in the 1830s, he'd eventually end up in western Zimbabwe with his people the Indabele. You're going to hear a lot more about Mzilagatsi, someone the famous explorer David Livingston called one of the most impressive leaders he met in Africa. So, back in 1819, the jostling continued as Shaka and Zwide competed for attention like two deadly twins. East of the Kamalo, the Makoba people and the Zungu, who were closely related, were forced to join the Zulu and their famous Ubuto, their warrior force called the Wild Dogs, joined Shaka in the fight against the Nduandwe. Between the Zungu and the Makoba, and living about midway along the Black Mfulosi River, were the Sabia people. There is a saying about these people which goes, Nampuke kwa Sabia Nga nkomu imbanye bibia Nga or the Sabia fence their cattle kraals with cattle when others use branches. They were wealthy, in other words. There was another group nearby, the Mbata, who also conserved Chaka, and now, as the Mtetua were gone, he had an opportunity to take on that old man, Zwide, of then Ndwandwe. Already, Zwide had headed south in late 1819 and early 1820 and driven the Zulu out of Mbelembeleni and their crucial centre at Esiklebeni. Sharka Shaka was now planning an ambush. All sources agree on this. So right now, he was withdrawing from the area close to the headwaters of the Uplatuizi River towards the Nkantla Forest, pursued by Zwide. Once again, there are various tales of why and where, what and whom. Most of these are full of Shaka calling on his doctors to volunteer to go to Zwide's people and pretend to Konza, and much of the success of the coming battle was going to be ascribed to how he could mystify the Ndwandwe by his superior use of body parts and a herb or two. There are many accounts of frothing, whether it was Zwide's use of a frothing medicine when he dealt with Dhingaswayo or Shaka's medicine men causing Ndwandwe warriors to froth at the mouth, this is a core principle of Zulu storytelling. It's based on observation of those who have fits appear to lose their minds, and nothing implies you have a more significant medicine capacity than being able to cause someone else to have a fit. However, everyone who watched the coming battle, and it was a big one, used more prosaic descriptions involving military manoeuvres, how Shaka deployed an intrinsically brilliant understanding of the landscape, his feints and his double bluffs. These are obviously the things that gave Shaka the edge, as you're going to hear. He allowed his medicinal smoke and mirror men to claim they had the power, but it was the unique Zulu commander who really gave them the edge. He could see the future, and it was his. With that, we must halt and prepare the meat for tonight's meal. Next episode, we will return to the Battle of Umfuzani at the confluence of that river and the Umplatuzi. This is a scant few kilometers upstream of the large Khudetro Dam built in the 1970s. 15 kilometers as the crow flies downstream the Umklatuzi River from Inkantla, which itself is a controversial and symbolic place as all South Africans know. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at deslatham. Until next, salalli.